Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning. Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let's pray together. Father God, it is so good to worship together this morning as your people. God, let us never lose sight of the lengths to which you went to make this possible. God, we pray that your spirit would refresh and renew our faith this morning and every morning as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Oh, good morning. How are you all doing? Good? Cheryl and I hosted 40 pastors and their wives in our backyard last night. And it was a lot of people. And a lot of you helped. And I woke up so incredibly tired. I, I am definitely drained by talking. I'm not the recharge person. So if I fall asleep briefly, just be patient with me. Um, but it was awesome. Thank you to those of you who helped us all week in prepping for that. Such a blessing just to be able to bless other pastors and their wives. Uh, so if you've been with us, this is our third week of our series about the mission and vision of Christ Church Kingwood. In the first week, we looked at the glory of God as the overarching vision for this church because that is God's vision for his church. Then we talked about gospel-centered worship as the fuel for the mission of the church, as the catalyst for living out this call of God on our lives. And then last week, we talked about gospel-centered community, or how it is that we live together as the people of God in light of the saving work of Jesus. And now, this week, we're going to talk about gospel-centered service. And I don't want to puff you guys up too much, but once again, this is something that you are all really good at. As I said last week, you're just kind of a strange bunch of people. The way you live and love and serve is just in such stark contrast to what is normative in the world. It is abnormal. The simple acts of love and the care you show, the food you deliver, the time you spend talking with people who are hurting is huge. And that is gospel-centered service. Sacrificing your time, your talents, your resources for the good of others. And it is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of the world. But as you know, this is both the life Jesus modeled and the life that we have been called to live. Even as a church, this is why we give away so much money every year. Because we know that love requires sacrifice. And if we're going to reach the world, then we must present something new and different from the world. Is my voice getting weird? Yeah, it's not me. Um, we have to present something that challenges their understanding of this life. We have to both speak their language and, and turn their value system on its head. 
And out in the world, money equates to value. Money equates to worth. And so we give generously. Even on a year like last year where our finances were not very good, we didn't slow down our giving. And honestly, if we hadn't given away so much money, then we would have ended up the year in a surplus. But that's not how we roll. That's not the call. And I would far rather talk at the end of the year about how much money we gave away than how much we held on to, right? And the reason we give is not because we think money is of great value or ultimate importance, but money does equate to value in the world. When you hand someone $1,000, when you pay a medical bill or put new tires on their car, it makes a huge impact in their life. It flies in the face of everything they think about the world and God and Christianity because the world says, cling to what is yours. Amass more stuff. Protect and build your own little kingdom. But the gospel, the life and the words of Jesus say, pour your life out. Lay your life down for others. Use every resource at your disposal to proclaim a living hope that is greater than this world. A joy that's unshakable, an inheritance that is eternal. Sacrifice what is temporal and fleeting so that you might invite the world into what is eternal. That is gospel-centered service. We're not serving to gain something for ourselves. We're not serving to build our Christian resume or to earn our way into God's presence. As we read in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. That is, God's love for us stirs us up to love and to worship towards God. And it overflows in loving actions and service towards others. We are compelled to love because God loved us when we were enemies. He redeemed us when we hated him. He called us out of darkness and into his presence solely because of his love and grace and mercy. That's the very heart of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been called to serve others. We've been called to pour our lives out, not to earn God's favor or galvanize our position as children of God, but because we are already loved and accepted, because we have already been greatly served. Mark 10:45 says, "For even the Son of Man." came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just to be clear, in the eyes of the first century religious establishment and the eyes of the world, Jesus was a failed prophet. He was a disappointment as a Messiah. People weren't looking for a king to to come in humility and love and service. They wanted a king to wield worldly power for worldly means. And how he came and what he came for 
was both baffling and offensive. And the reality is the more that our lives mimic that of our Savior, the more we grow to resemble Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we will stand out in the world. The more the world will be baffled and sometimes offended by the way that we live. So gospel-centered service is a response to the love that we have experienced from God through Jesus Christ. As well as all that has been promised in him. It is the result of gospel-centered worship fueling a desire to honor God and reflect his love in the way that we live. And it's important that we understand this. That it's not simply righteous actions that God is after. He isn't just looking for a community of people who check off all the religious boxes. That's what we saw from the Israelites over and over throughout the Old Testament. They would go into the temple and they would sing songs and sacrifice and follow the law. And God was like, stop it. Stop it. Why do you keep coming in here? Your worship makes me sick. Do you really think I need bulls and goats? Right? God spoke all of this into existence. He doesn't have a goat shortage. He just doesn't. And the Israelites were like, this is what you told us to do. We're following the rules. You told us to come into your presence and bring goats. But it wasn't their physical presence that God was after. He was after their hearts. He, he wanted them to delight in his presence, to find joy in his presence. And we see the same thing in the New Testament, right? The, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, is like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the law, and the guy's like, doing it, nailing the law, anything else, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and is like, oh, yeah, 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 one, one more thing. Just sell all your stuff and give it away and come follow me. And you know how it goes. The man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Once again, Jesus didn't care about this guy's stuff. Jesus didn't need this guy's money. If Jesus needs money, he makes it come out of the mouth of a fish, right? Matthew 17. Jesus spoke all that stuff into existence. But Jesus looked at this man's heart and he knew that while he was super religious, while he was nailing the law, while everyone around him probably thought this was the most religious and holy man on the block, he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. He was given a choice and he chose his stuff and he went away sorrowful. And this is a long lead-in for a discussion on gospel-centered service, but it's crucial that we understand that God is, is not after our actions. He is not after our stuff, but our hearts. That religious acts of service that please God are not done out of compulsion or obligation or guilt. They're not about boosting our ego or religious fame. They are the overflow of a heart that loves God. And that's my hope for this church. Not that we would check off more boxes of Christian service, but that we would be so moved by the love of God in Christ Jesus 
that we would be so transformed by the love that we have experienced in him that our hearts would overflow with joy and service and love. And so I just want to talk through a couple stories from Scripture that exemplify the service that we have been called to reflect. And they're like go-to stories for me, so you've probably heard them a hundred times. So they're not going to be new, but we still have a lot to learn. So if you have your Bibles or your scrolly phones, turn to uh, John 13, beginning in verse 3. And it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And we've talked about feet washing before. It's nasty, right? It's just gross. Touching other people's feet is just not something that we should do. It's weird. But as gross as it is now, imagine a culture where you wear sandals everywhere. It's hot and dusty, and you kind of live with animals all the time. It was both a necessity and extremely funky. But it wasn't just the fact that washing feet was gross. It was humiliating. There were few things more demeaning in the first century than cleaning another man's feet. That was the job of servants. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, taking off his outer garment, getting a basin of water, and wiping the dirt and the funk off of these men's feet. Can you imagine? And the text frames it up really well what's happening. It's really beautiful. It starts with Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. That's the lead-in. So just to be clear, Jesus didn't wash the feet of the disciples out of weakness. It wasn't that he needed to gain anything. As we just read, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew he was the sovereign Lord over all creation. Jesus wasn't serving out of an absence of power. He was redefining what power is and how power should be used in this life. Jesus had ultimate power and he chose to humble himself to the lowest social rung imaginable and wash these men's feet. And you know Peter's going to have something to say about that, right? He's always got to push back. That's how Peter did it. He just, he always had a word. And Jesus was clear, like he kind of tried to help him out. He's like, what I'm doing, you don't understand. But afterward, you will understand. Because Peter was gonna, or Jesus was going to explain it to him. But Peter wasn't listening. All he heard was foot washing. And he's like, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only. Wash my hands and wash my head. Like, that's Peter. Right? you got to love it. You're never going to wash my feet. Okay, wash everything. <laughs> Quick flip. Peter simply had no framework for what Jesus was doing. It, it made no sense. And after Jesus was done, he resumed his place at the table and explained why he had done it. 
saying in verse 12, do you understand what I've done to you? That's a rhetorical question. He knew they didn't understand, right? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Seems pretty clear. And what makes this so hard to swallow, the reason this was so unthinkable for Peter, is that their culture, like ours, was built upon the premise of power. That is, the more powerful you are, the wealthier you are, the more influential you are, the more talented you are, the less expectations there are on you to lower yourself to help other people. And the less power or wealth or talent you have, the more you're expected to serve those who have more than you. It's how every culture functions to this day. They are predicated on power. The wealthier you are, the fewer expectations there are on your life. And that's what so many people are chasing. To get to the point where you have enough influence or power or money or whatever so that you can avoid menial tasks. So that people will serve you, not the other way around. And here we have Jesus affirming his authority as we read, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I am. I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the one true God. I'm the Lord of creation. I silence storms with a word, I heal the sick with a touch, and I tell dead people they're not dead, and they listen. That's who I am. And yet, I do this to set an example, to show you that my kingdom is different from the kingdom of this world in every way. That in my kingdom, we don't operate, operate like the world. We do not use our power, we do not use our position or influence to avoid serving those under us, but rather use our power and position and influence to actively lower ourselves in humility and to serve others. Jesus turns the power system of the world on its head and calls us to reflect his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. And we see it again in Matthew 20, right? You got James and John send their mom, right? That's a bad start. They send their mom to ask Jesus if they can sit at his right and left hand in glory. And this obviously annoys the other disciples. They were indignant, is what scripture says. But once again, James and John were viewing power through the lens of the world. They saw a position of honor and they wanted it which in turn stirred up the indignation of the other disciples towards James and John around this idea of who would be regarded as the greatest of the disciples. And Jesus addresses them, saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I love these verses. This is the very heart of gospel-centered service. Jesus takes the power system of the world and just flips it. He took all of his authority and power and emptied himself in the service of others. He laid his life down so that we might have life. This is how the power structure works in the kingdom of God. This is what leadership looks like in the church. If you have power or money or authority or gifts, they have been given to you by God so that you might pour yourself out for the glory of God and for the good of others. But the words of Jesus here that are just always ringing in my ear, it shall not be so among you. Just those where it shall not be so among you. Because we can look around and see how the world functions. We can see how power and influence work. And there's a part of us that wants that. There's part of us that knows this is how the world works. This is how you move forward in advance. But Jesus came to inaugurate a new kingdom, a new kind of community. And he says, you see how the Gentile rulers wield their power, but that will not be the case among my people. I came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life for many. And that's the call. But it's not easy, right? How do we do that? How do we live lives of gospel-centered service, lives poured out? I mean, it, it obviously begins with the gospel. It begins with knowing and believing all that Christ has done for us, all that he's doing in us, by daily setting our minds on Christ and praying that his heart would become ours, that his humility would overcome the pridefulness of our flesh, that his love would overcome the entitlement of our flesh, that his grace would overcome the bitterness and the judgment of our flesh. Because it is only by the power of Jesus through the inner working of the Spirit that we as a church can live out this call. And it is a power that has been promised to us. A power that is now in us. And because Christ now lives in us, we can live as heralds of this coming kingdom. Letting Christ's life be seen through us by the way we live and the way we love and the way we care for one another. And so what does that look like practically in our day-to-day -day lives? I think Paul, his words in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 set the stage pretty well for us. We read this a few weeks back. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that goes against pretty much every grain of our fleshly existence, right? And everything the world has to say about this life. Don't be driven by selfish ambition. Don't be driven by conceit. 
Don't only look to what's important to you. Don't build your own little personal kingdom where you're constantly trying to protect your time and your money and your energy from all of those that are trying to get a piece of what's yours. But rather, look to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourself. Paul calls us to live this way. And then he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. Paul says, have this mind because it is already in you. And that is huge. He's not saying muster up all your willpower to serve others or think of others. He's saying this is in you through Jesus. This mind and this heart that looks to the needs of others is yours in Christ Jesus. So look to him. Learn from him. Trust in him. And his heart will become yours. And that is my prayer. That God would rewire our hearts and our brains so that we don't view all of these relational connections that we have through the lens of what can I get from this person? Or how can I be served? But rather, how can I show the love of Christ to the people God has put in my life? And it's often hardest to do this with the people we're closest to, right? Spouses, siblings, parents. Because if you're married, you have baggage. Amen? Yeah, you can say that. If you're married, you got baggage. Past hurt or disappointment or shame. And this baggage is always whispering in our ears, always giving us reasons to think about ourselves, to think about our needs, giving us ample reason not to love unconditionally, not to serve our spouse, reminding us why they don't deserve our service. But the very nature of gospel-centered service is it is not something we've earned. It is not something we deserve, but something freely given. It's not a reflection of their righteousness. It's a reflection of the righteousness of Jesus who laid down his life for us, serving us with humility and grace while we were enemies. And we've been called to follow Jesus' example. And if you're thinking, you don't know my spouse, pastor. You don't know my situation. You don't know how hard it is. You're right. I probably don't. But Jesus did, right? And he washed the feet of Judas that night. Knowing that he was about to be betrayed and put to death knowing the hatred in that man's heart. And kids, you're part of this community as well. You've been called by Jesus to reflect his love in the way that you serve. And just like I talk about with your parents, like this call is on your life. And it's the people closest to you as well that are usually going to be the hardest, like your parents, like your brothers or sisters, do you think about how you can serve them? I know your kids, you're like, I don't have to think about that. And Jesus says otherwise, okay? 
And I'm not just talking about obeying your parents. I know you think you're all grown up and that's super cool. So I'll ask you like I ask your grown-up parents, do you think about yourself or do you think about others more? Do you think about what serves you or how you can serve others more? They're good questions to think about because as you grow up, you will choose what kind of person you will be. You will choose whether you look to Jesus and follow his example of sacrifice and service and love or you'll look at the world and say, I want all that stuff. I want to be cool. I want to be known. And your parents can't make that choice for you. But I will tell you that right now, even in your awesome kidness, you are faced with that choice every single day. You're making that choice. And it would serve you well to think about that. We must all decide if we are going to live for ourselves or live for Jesus. And you can't do both. Scripture is clear. Living for Jesus, loving and serving others is true life. The world is striving to find meaning and purpose, and they're willing to look anywhere but Jesus to try and find it. But as we see so clearly, the world just dives deeper and deeper into sin, deeper into self, and they will never find what they're looking for because we were created by God to be in a relationship with him, to find true life and joy in him, to join in his plan of redemption by following Jesus and laying down our lives for others. There is abundant joy and life when we follow Jesus. But it's hard. It will be costly this is the life that we've been called into. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and said, I've given you an example that you should do. That is gospel-centered service. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is what Paul was talking about when he said the love of Christ controls us. It's a prayerful, humble, and thankful life. So transformed by the love of Jesus Christ that his heart becomes our heart. And that we gladly make ourselves less that others might experience his love. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that we as a community would be a people marked by the way that we serve. God, a peculiar people baffling people to the world because we don't live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. God, make us a community of servants because we have been well served and our eternity is secure in Jesus Christ. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamlin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.